All right, everybody, so let's go ahead and get started into the notes this evening. We are uh, jumping into a new section where for the next uh, few weeks or maybe even months, we will be looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology. Uh, Remember that soteriology is the study of salvation from our two Greek words, soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about something. So we are studying uh, soteriology. And uh, in this current section, uh, we're looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology. So let's go ahead and jump into this, and I'm not sure how far we'll make it this evening. Depends on how many uh, scriptures we chase down and if we uh, chase any rabbit trails as well. So in our previous sections, we discussed various biblical concepts related to soteriology, and in this current section, we will consider the biblical meaning of words related to our salvation and seek to unpack their theological significance. Uh, These are presented in alphabetical order and uh, should be considered by the serious student of Scripture. So our first word that we're going to look at is the word adoption. The word adoption. So God has an adoption agency. He's into adoption, uh, to adopting children into his family. Now, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, uh, we have been transferred from Satan's uh, domain of darkness and placed into the family of God. Remember, we had talked about these things even last week. I had spent some time talking about identification truths. That is, those truths uh, with regard to who we are, our identity, as it relates to our being in union with Christ. And Paul uses a a theologically rich prepositional phrase, in Christo, that is, in Christ. And remember that in Christ, we were crucified with him, uh, we were buried with him, we were raised to new life with him. Uh, we, we ascended with him. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. Uh, this is part of our new identity. Prior to faith in Christ, we are said to be in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. But at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. And we are no longer part of Satan's domain of darkness. Uh, we are transferred. Colossians 1, 13 says... For he rescued us, and we were rescued, because remember that we were slaves in Satan's slave market of sin. And so God rescued us, and this happened at the moment of faith in Christ, and we were transferred. It was a spiritual transference that occurred at the moment of salvation. So he rescued us from the domain of darkness, that's Satan's realm, and uh, it consists of all unbelievers and unfortunately, some believers who, uh, who are positionally not in his kingdom, but who have uh, defected to some degree, uh, though they are believers, they are Christians, they abide by Satan's world system. And so this is why John tells us, do not love the world nor the things of the world. And James says, if anyone is a friend of the world, he's an enemy of God. Well, it is possible for a believer to operate in status quo carnality according to their sin nature and according to Satan's values and world system. Now, those who who live that way will be subject to divine discipline and will also forfeit future rewards. And these are things that we'll talk about. 
But remember that before the universe and the earth existed, before anything existed, uh, God created the angels, and the first sin that took place took place in heaven by an angel of the class of cherubim uh, by the name of Lucifer, and he rebelled against God, and he led a rebellion, and he convinced uh, roughly about a third of the angels to follow him. And so the kingdom of darkness was created at that time, at that time. And when God created Adam and Eve, when he created the universe and the earth, and he created Adam and Eve, um, then Satan came to the earth and he expanded his kingdom of darkness by leading the first humans into sin. And so they handed the title deed of the earth over to Satan, and Satan at that time became the ruler of this world. So his kingdom of darkness has been in existence since, well, since the beginning, uh, since the original fall of Adam and Eve. And so those who are born in Adam uh, into this world biologically, uh, descendants of the first couple, Adam and Eve, are born into Satan's domain of darkness. But at the moment of faith in Christ, God transfers us. This is not a feeling. This is a fact. God transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so we are transferred over and we are placed into the family of God. Now, our new status uh, is that we are children of God. Uh, John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And who is that? Even those who believe in his name, because it's simple faith. It's faith alone in Christ alone. And so at that moment, we are transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And at that moment, we become children of God. And 1 John 3, 1, uh, John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And this is by faith. At the moment of faith in Christ, again, we are transferred, uh, and our identity is no longer in Adam, but in Christ. And at that moment, we become children of God. Now, remember that we do not come into the world as natural-born children of God. Uh, rather, we are said to be born in Adam. And it's interesting because... Paul uh, draws this image where it's almost like there's two people standing before God with two lines of humanity standing behind these two people. The one is the first Adam, that's Adam, and the second one is the last Adam, that's Jesus. And the question is, which line are you in? Because only one line is going to get into heaven. It's going to, going to get into heaven. But he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for since by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man, that's Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. And notice he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, that is, those who are in Christ. So this becomes an identification truth. But again, prior to our becoming children of God, we are naturally born in Adam, Ephesians 2.2 calls us sons of disobedience. Now, anytime you find that phrase, sons of, <clears throat> it means to be characterized by a quality, 
to be characterized by equality. And so in this case, uh, we are characterized as those who are uh, uh, disobedient to the Lord. And so that becomes a general characteristic. And according to Ephesians 2, 3, we are said to be by nature, by nature, children of wrath. Um, But at the moment of faith in Christ, see, something happens. At the moment of faith in Christ, we receive, according to Romans 8, 15, we receive uh, the adoption as sons. Now, this is a general term. It refers to just simply being a child of God because it's daughters too. It's not just not gender specific here, so don't take it that way. Uh, but we become adopted children of God, according to Romans 8.15. So we're not naturally born that way. But see, God has an adoption plan. And so God adopts us into his family. You see? Now, the term adoption derives from the Greek word weathesia. Weathesia, which according to Bedag, which is the Bauer, Dank, Dank, uh, Arndt, uh, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, uh, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, defines it as, quote, those who believe in Christ and are accepted as God's children with full rights, end quote. So we are accepted as God's children, but even though we come in as babes in Christ, even though that is our status, and we need to grow up because that's, that's phase two of the Christian life, and here in some future lessons, we're going to spend several weeks talking about what is the spiritual life. In fact, that'll be probably in uh, uh, six or eight months from now. I'm not, I don't know exactly when that'll be, uh, but we're going to spend some time talking about the steps to spiritual maturity because God wants us to grow up. But we come into the family of God with full rights. And I listed uh, about 32 of those last week. That was the lengthy part of our study. I went through and talked about many of the blessings that are ours at the moment of faith in Christ. We are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. We have received a spiritual gift from God. We have been transferred from Adam into Christ. Uh, We are ambassadors Uh, for Christ. You see, we have all of this new identity, and we need to grow into that. Now, you're not going to grow into that apart from studying the Word of God and learning it. And and as you learn it, you'll have the opportunity to apply it. But it starts off with this identity. And you see, our performance as Christians should be that of our position in Christ. We are children of God. We are brothers and sisters to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we are part of the royal family. And the issue for us is to expunge that lifetime of human viewpoint, uh, which gets us to think like the world around us, like peasants, and we need to start thinking with regard to our new identity in Christ, because that literally defines who we are. You see, it's not what other people think about us, uh, however opinionated they may be. It's not even what we think about ourselves. Uh, Whether your esteem is high or low, it doesn't matter. It's what does God think about you, because that's the issue. Because God and his word define reality, and you are what God says you are, you see. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians, he he repeats it in Colossians, but he tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have in Christ Jesus. Walk in a manner worthy uh, according to your calling. Now, you are a child of God, but we need to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. But it starts with your identity. It starts with you understanding who you are in Christ Jesus. And so we are adopted into the family of God with full rights, 
You see, we can come boldly, confidently before his throne of grace. We don't have to cower in. We can come in. We can, we can stand there confidently because he's our father. And it's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It is a throne of grace. And we can come and we can confess our sins, which is a function of our priesthood, by the way. I talked about that last week, too. You see, there's a lot of these identification truths that are very, very powerful to the Christian life. And we have to learn to orient our thinking according to the standard of God's word. You see, that's much of the Christian life is learning to recalibrate your thinking because human viewpoint gets in there and, and it's like throwing a wrench into the gears. It just throws everything out of whack and nothing works right if you're thinking by human viewpoint. So you have to, you have to get all that garbage out and you have to clean everything up and you have to uh, make sure it's properly oiled and that everything runs smoothly. But that is you thinking divine viewpoint consistently in your life. And so you're constantly recalibrating your thinking according to the standard of God's word. And so a lot of the things that we're going to talk about in the weeks ahead have to do with these identification truths, you say. So we are adopted, and we come in with full rights, we come in with full privileges, and, uh, and we come in, again, with a portfolio of spiritual assets that just simply are staggering when one thinks about it. And I, I, I'll tell you, I, like last week, even when we went through those 32 points, uh, there's times where I can sit and study this stuff, and it just brings tears to my eyes to think about how good God is to us, that he would bless us, that Christ gained the victory over sin and death through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. He gained the victory, and as the victor, he showers us. He showers us with all of the spoils of war, as it were, because he gained the victory. And so we get all these wonderful blessings, and these come to us. And that's just such an amazing thing to think about the grace of God. Um, But again, we come in with all of these blessings. And so we have to learn to adjust our thinking according to the standard of God's word. Now, for the first time, uh, really, after the moment of faith in Christ, for that first time, as children of God, we have the privilege and the right to cry out to God as Abba, Father. And by the way, that word Abba is a very, very intimate term. We might liken it to the word Daddy. Uh, It's a very affectionate term, and it's used of somebody who is in a very close and intimate relationship. Uh, Now listen, you cannot call God your Father. You cannot say Abba, Father, If he's not, you see, you have to be in Christ. You have to be a believer. And I think of even the Lord's Prayer when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But you can't call him Father if he's not. Remember over in John 8, 44, Jesus told the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father, the devil. You see, but we can call God Abba, Father, we have that level of intimacy and closeness with him that we can cry out to him and we can call him Abba, Father. Now, this adoption, this adoption by God is an act of love and grace. It's an act of love and grace on his part because there was nothing in us that was lovely or beautiful or charming or attractive. We were not and are not lovely to the Lord. We are sinners by nature, sinners by choice, sinners in Adam. We are ungodly. We were hostile. We were enemies of God, um, uh, fallen in our sin. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. You see, and the love of God is born out of the character of God. God loves us because of who he is and not because of who we are. God is love. And so the kindness that we are shown and the fact that we have this privilege to be adopted into the family of God is, uh, is an act of love and grace on his part. It really is. And I think of Ephesians 1, 5, where it says he predestined us, notice, to adoption. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss that, uh, that little prepositional phrase there, through Uh, Jesus Christ to himself, because we cannot come to the Father except that we come through Christ, because man needs only Christ to be saved. It is Christ and Christ alone. But we have this adoption as children, notice, through Jesus Christ to himself, and this was according to what? The kind intention of his will. This is according to his kindness that he would bring us into his family. Now, our position in God's family should lead to a new and better performance of life. It really, it should. And, uh, and so when we come to understand our identity in Christ, who we are, our new position in Christ, and we begin to understand the love of God toward us, and we really begin to understand all that goes into our salvation, because there's a lot of moving parts to this, and there's a lot of activity. Remember, God, God the Father planned our salvation from eternity past, and he commissioned the Son, he sent the Son, and at a point in time, nearly 2,000 years ago, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, came into the world and took upon himself humanity. He was virgin-born, minus Adam's original sin, minus a sin nature, lived an absolutely sinless life, and went to a cross and died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we can never earn. And, uh, and so we see some of the parts, and we've covered these things in the past, so you see how, how, how many moving parts there are to our salvation. But as we begin to understand these things, uh, it real, I'll be honest, it motivates me. It makes me want to serve him. It makes me want to walk in righteousness. It makes me want to live a life that is pleasing to him. It really. So our position in God's family should lead to a new and better performance of life. And God calls us to spiritual maturity. Uh, Hebrews 6.1, it says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to what? To maturity. Let us press on to maturity because that's what God wants. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to be uh, well-functioning adults uh, in the world. And so he wants us to grow up and reach spiritual maturity. And 2 Peter 3.18 tells us to grow. And we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And grace is always needed because, listen, even though you are born again, you have new spiritual life, you're part of the family of God, you're transferred from Adam to Christ, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son, you have the imputed righteousness of God, you have the imputed uh, eternal life, you have all these wonderful blessings that that come your way, you have the love of God, you have all this privilege, you have this ambassadorship, this, this peace with God, you have all of these wonderful things that you enjoy, Uh, guess what? You still have a sin nature and you still live in a fallen world. And uh, at the moment of faith in Christ, apart from the gospel, you probably don't know much about the Christian life, if anything at all. 
And so it takes time. That's phase two of the Christian life. And so we are told uh, to submit ourselves to God and to renew our minds, Romans 12, 1 and, 1 and 2, to renew our minds. And so that means that we, again, go through this process of studying the Word of God, of learning it, and in that process of learning it, we are expunging, we are removing, we are extracting that lifetime of human viewpoint and replacing it with divine viewpoint. And so as we're growing, we need grace. We need lots and lots of grace. So when we grow, we grow in grace. And when we come before the Father, uh, we come before a throne of grace. And, uh, and so when we are growing as Christians, there's lots of grace involved there. And knowledge, because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. It's always in that order. It's learning it and then living it. But as I've said before, learning it is no guarantee that you'll live it, okay? Uh, because James tells us, uh, uh, he says, be ye what? Doers of the word and not merely hearers only. Because it is possible to have a head uh, filled with all sorts of doctrine and not apply it. And I've seen that, and I'll confess, I've been there a couple times myself. You know, James even says to him who knows the right thing to do, that's the believer operating from divine viewpoint, to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, you see, and that's possible. That's possible. To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin, because it means that we know what the right thing is and we're choosing to do uh, otherwise. Uh, so we need to grow in the grace and knowledge. So coming as, as adopted into the family of God is just the starting point. Now, it's a wonderful thing, but we have to realize that we are, in fact, children of God, and we've been adopted. This is part of our adoption process. Okay, so we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Norman Geisler, and here I have a quote from Geisler, and I like Geisler. Geisler's good. And this is from his Systematic Theology. It's a four-volume set. This is from volume three, page 226. He says, quote, Adoption, from the Greek word weathesia, means placing as a son. It signifies literally a legal child. And it is used five times in the New Testament. Theologically, adoption refers to the act of God that places a person as a son in God's family. Adoption is a term of position whereby one becomes a son by the new birth, is redeemed from the bondage of the law, and although only a child is by adoption made an adult son, which is fully manifested at the resurrection of the body, end quote. Uh, now, he, he hints on something eschatological there in that last clause, and I'll get to that here in just a moment. Get to that here in just a moment. But there's a lot in there. But uh, what he comments here when he says, theologically, adoption refers to the act of God that places a person as a son in God's family. That's generally at the heart of it. That's generally at the heart of it. Now, I was reading through Themes Bible Doctrine Dictionary the other day, and I I, I like that. That's, that's a pretty good little dictionary. He's got a lot of good stuff in there. Of course, Colonel Theme generally did. Uh, but I've got a quote here from, his, uh, from the new dictionary uh, that came out uh, on adoption, and he says, quote, God's bestowal of sonship and heirship upon believers is a grace gift at the moment of salvation. 
Through union with Christ, every church-age believer, male or female, is adopted into God's royal family and granted joint heirship with God the Son, who is the heir of all things. Even though the new believer is a spiritual infant, adoption recognizes his position not as a napios, that is a young child, but as a weos, an adult son. This royal son of God receives the full privileges and responsibilities of spiritual aristocracy along with an eternal inheritance, end quote. Now, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there that is packed. Um, but his general statement here, uh, where he says, through union with Christ, every church-age believer, male or female, is adopted into God's royal family, and I like that language, is adopted into God's royal family and granted joint heirship with God the Son, who is the heir of all things, you see. And, uh, and, and I like the way he phrased that. That's, uh, that's good language there. So again, when we think about adoption, we should think about the kindness of God to bring us into his family. We are adopted. It is a legal transference. Now, that is a right now truth. That is a right now truth, but... Uh, even though that is a right now truth, there, there's an eschatological aspect of that. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, eschatology is the study of last things or final things. Now, generally, when we think about eschatology, we think about the study, we think about future prophecy, okay, uh, things yet to come. And so there is an aspect of adoption that will find its fulfillment in the future, uh, so going on in the notes here, though fully adopted as God's children, there is an eschatological aspect to our adoption that is pending our future glorified bodies. You see, in Romans 8.21, Paul wrote that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, and he then draws a parallel with our status as children in verse 23, saying, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, that is, the redemption of our body. And that's Romans 8.23. So it's one of those things where it's just, I, I liken it to eternal life. Eternal life is what we have at the moment of faith in Christ. It is a present possession. I have, right now, eternal life. Now, it finds its fullest expression when I leave this world and enter into the eternal state. And I think the same thing is true with adoption, that it is a right now truth. It is, it is a status that belongs to us as children of God, and we can call him Abba Father. Uh, we can approach him that way. But yet there is something that will find its complete fulfillment uh, in the new heavens and new earth uh, when we have uh, the redemption of our body. Now, I'm looking forward to that new body. My current body seems to be uh, breaking down more and more. And uh, I don't, I'm not a complainer, but, uh, but it is one of those things. You wake up in the morning, you feel the, the, the creaks and the groans and, and uh, you know, just the things that are going on. So I'm very much looking forward uh, to the redemption of the body. Now, closing out this last section here, we are, and I want to emphasize this, children by position. We are children by position because we have been transferred from Satan's domain of darkness. We are transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. But see, here's another thing is even that will find ultimate expression when the kingdom comes in. And so even though it is something that we, that we can declare at the moment as a truth, 
it is something that will find its fullest expression in the future. But we are children by position. And we will experience our freedom from sin when we receive our glorified bodies. And you know that we are going to get glorified bodies. You see, Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Now, that's interesting to me because we talked about this last week. This is one of the blessings. We have a citizenship in heaven right now. I I have citizenship status. And so when I go to heaven, when I get there, and I will get there uh, because the Lord has promised that to me and to all who have trusted in Christ as Savior, but when I get to heaven, I will be going to a place where I have a right to be there as a citizen. So we have a citizenship in heaven. Uh, But notice he says, he goes on, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will happen? What will happen uh, is uh, Christ, uh, he goes on in verse 21, who who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Now, he's going to do this by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. But we will have a body that is in conformity with his resurrected body. We will have a body like his. And his body, by the way, uh, there's no sin, never has been. Uh, and so his body is without sin. Notice 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. See, now, right now, we are children of God. Now, the issue is, do you act like it? You see, that's, that's something we're going to, and I'll, I'll bounce back and forth on this. Um, but I think about, you know, even, I mean, let's, let's take England, okay? Let's, let's take a, a country where there's a very popular royalty, okay? And uh, England gets a lot of press these days, and people are questioning whether or not, you know, they should even have a king or a queen over there because it drains the, uh, the economy, and it just seems like a lot of money flows in. And what do they do? I mean, you know, they're, they're like political figureheads, but they don't really have, uh, like, any power, so to speak, you know? And so there's a big question on whether or not uh, that should continue. But let's use it for the sake of argument. Well, imagine you are born uh, in the royal family. So you're, you're a little prince or a little princess, okay? But let's say you grow up and, uh, and you go out on the town and, uh, and, you, and you have a few drinks and you get a little wild. You get carried away and uh, all the cameras are on you because that's what they do, right? The paparazzi, they follow you around. They're just looking for a photo op, just some opportunity to get front headlines, and so, you know, they're going to catch the, uh, the prince or the princess in a drunken stupor saying some really dumb things, maybe gets into a fight uh, and then, uh, and then uh, passes out. And uh, somebody picks him up and drags him back to the royal palace, uh, bumps and bruises and all. And he gets back to the palace. Well, guess what? When he wakes up in the morning uh, with a hangover and wh- whatever else he has to deal with from the night before, you know what? He's still a prince. Now, he may, be a, he may be a prince who behaved poorly. Maybe he acted like the peasants. Maybe he failed to abide by the royal family honor code. But in his position, he is still a prince. And that is one of the things that we must understand about an identification truth. It is a fact. It is your position in Christ. And that's why I say we are children by position. We have been adopted. We are part of the royal family of God. And so 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God right now. Fact. 
And it is something that we accept by faith, not feelings. Listen, I love my feelings. My feelings are wonderful. It's part of what it means to be a human being. But I do not want to be governed by my feelings. And my feelings can get out of hand at times because I, I can get a little emotional. I can get passionate about things. And I have to be one of these people that when my emotions flare, I got to put a choke on it. I have to choke it off and not let it govern me. I want to respond and not react in a, in a difficult situation. And I know sometimes when emotion gets away, I'm reacting and, and not responding. And so it's not the best of Steve. And then I have to repent and confess and, you know, all this stuff and apologize, you know, to people that I may have damaged, you know, hurt with my words or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, we are to walk by faith. Now, faith means that we're learning the word and we accept it as true and we learn to reorient and recalibrate our thinking uh, to align with the word of God. But we have to understand these truths. But this is something that comes to us as a benefit of the cross, you see. Beloved, now we are children of God. And that is a present truth. But notice he, he touches on things future. And it has not yet appeared as what we will be. You see, the best is yet to come. But he says in the latter part of this verse, we know that when he appears, we will be what like him because we will see him just as he is. And we will be just like him. And in verse five, it says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. So we will be like him uh, in the sense that we will have a perfect resurrected body, perfect, minus sin, minus the contaminants of, of sin and all that goes into that. So we operate from a right now truth, but we also look forward uh, with, a ex, with an eschatological hope, a future hope of what we will have when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state, uh, either by rapture or by death and resurrection, however it happens. So there's a future aspect to this that is guaranteed us because of our position in Christ right now. All right, so now having covered adoption, let's move into deliverance from sin. Deliverance from sin. Now concerning the Christian spiritual deliverance, the New Testament, remember, uh, describes it in three tenses. In three tenses. Now because we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Uh, we are being saved from the power of sin and uh, in order that we might live righteously. And ultimately, we will be saved from the very presence of sin when we, when we leave this world and enter into heaven. So we have all three aspects here. But we are saved from the penalty of sin. So take, for example, um, Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, you will never face the lake of fire. Now, if, you, uh, if you'll excuse me for a moment here, if you are dumb enough to pursue a life of sin, if you're that stupid... Uh, that you're going to be arrogant and you think you as a Christian can turn away from the Lord. And I hear these people say, oh, well, you, you teach once saved, always saved. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because once you are saved, you are always saved. You can't undo that. And they say, oh, well, then you can run out and sin and do whatever you want. Listen, you try that and you see how far that gets you. Because the scripture is very, very clear. He whom the Lord loves, he disciplines like a father his own son. And he goes on, he says, and if you are without discipline, of whom all have become partakers, uh, then you're not even a child of God. 
you see, because God doesn't spank the devil's children, okay? But uh, he whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son, pasah weos, he, and he scourges every son whom he receives, you see? Now, if you live long enough, and it's just inevitable, it's just inevitable, you're going to test the Lord. It's going to happen, okay? Uh, and what's going to happen is, is God is going to discipline you. Now, sometimes that's going to be a mild discipline. Sometimes he's really going to lower the boom on you. And he's really going to spank you. He's going to scourge you. And a scourge is a whipping. Uh, and I've been scourged a couple times. I'm telling you, the wounds run very deep. But I was a strong-willed child. That was me. I was the stubborn, strong-willed child. And I needed it. I needed every lick I got. I, he probably didn't give me everything that I, uh, or, or, that I deserved, but that's grace, you see. And discipline is always tailored for the moment. It's always tailored for the individual uh, so that when God disciplines, it's, it's, it's tailored to each person. But I know that even when I'm going through getting a skinning, yeah, I know when God's disciplining me. I know, because I know when I've been out of line, and I know when he's reprimanding me, and, uh, and he's, uh, he's lowering the boom, and I get it. Uh, but I also realize that he's, he's doing that because he loves me, you see? And so God loves me enough to give me what I need. And so occasionally he has to discipline us. And it's true for all of us. So if you haven't had your skinning yet, just hold on. You'll get it. It's just a matter of time. Um, and so, but I realize that even when I sin, there is no condemnation. I am not in danger of the lake of fire. That is not a reality. Now, I can suffer great discipline in this life. In fact, there is, even in 1 John five sixteen, there is the sin unto death. And that is the believer who continues in status quo carnality for a prolonged period of time and does not respond to God's disciplining hand. And God has to remove that believer by the sin unto death. Now, I can give you an examples of that. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Uzzah, who reached out and touched the ark, God struck him dead. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They were, they were believers. Uh, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and God struck them dead. It was a, a very early time in the church, and the standards were very high, uh, and the church was in a state of transition, and that sort of uh, holiness was expected of believers, and so God disciplined them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, Paul talks about believers. He says, many of you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, and sleep there being a euphemism for death. So it just simply means that the believer uh, is suffering the sin unto death. The other thing that happens with a believer who goes into status quo carnality is also forfeiting rewards for eternity. Forfeiting rewards for eternity. And this also is unfortunate, but never are they in danger of the lake of fire because there is now no condemnation. Underscore it, highlight it, circle it, put little asterisks around it, okay? But there is no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christo Yesu, in Christ Jesus, because that is your position. So uh, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Now, as believers, we are also being saved from the power of sin because the sin nature has been crippled and we no longer have to abide by the sin nature. That's why Paul says in Romans six eleven, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God, notice, 
in Christ Jesus. That's that identification truth. You say, well, Steve, how do I, how do, I do that? How do I apply Romans 11? By faith, by faith, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. That's a fact. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. By the way, can you do that? Yes, you can. Otherwise, Paul's words here would be meaningless. But he says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So again, we are being saved from the power of sin, and ultimately we will be saved from the very presence of sin, and I've covered that with Philippians 3.20, 1 John 3.2, and 3.5, so we hit that just a moment ago. Now, these three aspects of our salvation are also referred to as justification, which means that we are declared just before God once and for all. Uh, Our sanctification, which is progressive righteousness over time. This is our walk with the Lord as we uh, ascend in a life of righteousness. As we walk with the Lord, uh, sin uh, and, and sinful activities, mental attitudes, Uh, of sin, sins of the tongue, sins of the flesh, overt sins, covert sins, whatever category of sin you're dealing with, these things will begin to diminish in the life of the growing believer. Now, you'll never hit a place of absolute perfection. That's just not true, and there's no example of that in the Bible. Remember Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 make it very clear. If we say that we have no sin, their hamartia is a noun, uh, no sin nature, uh, then we uh, deceive ourselves. We call God a liar. 1 John 1, 10 says if we say that we have no sin or that we have not sinned, that's hamartano, the verb form. Uh, so that's activity of sin. But you see, we continue to, conf- uh, to commit sin. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is so important that we confess our sins daily. Uh, But sanctification, that is phase two of the Christian life, refers to our progressive righteousness over time. And then glorification is the removal of the sin nature after we leave this world. And so we're looking at deliverance of sin in these three phases. And I've hit on this before, but a little repetition kind of helps clear out the cobwebs and reinforce some of these things in your thinking. Now, according to Charles Ryrie, he says, quote, The inclusive sweep of salvation is underscored by observing the three tenses of salvation. The moment one believed, he was saved from the condemnation of sin. Two, the believer is also being saved from the dominion of sin and is being sanctified and preserved. And three, and he will be saved from the very presence of sin in heaven forever. So those three tenses are commonly understood. Now, The first and the third aspects of our salvation, that is justification and glorification, are accomplished by God without any human assistance. Now, I want to pause for just a moment just to emphasize that. The first and third aspects of our salvation, that is our justification, 
are being transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, us being forgiven all of our sins, us being given the gift of eternal life, us being given the gift of righteousness, us being given a portfolio of spiritual assets, receiving the love of God, being reconciled to God, having peace with God, uh, being able to call him Abba Father. These are all things that happen to us by God, uh, and it's a blessing to us, but we don't make any of those things happen. Those are positional truths that are part of our being identified as being in Christ. That is entirely a work of God. Salvation is never what we do for God. It's what God has done for us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is always of the Lord, okay? And I'm talking about that phase one where we come into the family of God. That's all his work. That's all his work. That's entirely of God. We are just the fortunate beneficiaries having trusted in Christ. And by the way, faith is not a work, okay? You are saved by grace. That is, you don't earn it or deserve it. You are saved by grace through faith. Faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Faith is merely the instrument by which you receive that salvation. And so you trust in Christ and uh, Christ gets all the credit because he is the one who saves, he is the Savior, and we are the ones who receive the benefit of that. So we receive salvation. So that's all of God. Well, our glorification is the same way. Listen, I don't know when the rapture is going to occur. I hope it happens right now. I'm ready. Let's go, Lord. I'm tired of this world. I'm ready to move on. Let's, let's, let's get on with the heavenly scene. I'm ready for that. But there are people who still need to come to faith in Christ. And as long as there's breath in this world and God has not raptured the church, it means there's a mission. And where there are people to be prayed for, there are people who need to hear the gospel, there are believers who need to learn the word of God so they can advance to maturity, and we have a mission in this world. We are told to be lights in a dark world. And so we have a mission, we have an objective, we have something that we are called to while we're in this world, this stinky, rotten world. I don't like this world. Oh, there's nice things in it. I enjoy a nice meal. I enjoy good friends, uh, good fellowship with my lovely friends. I enjoy work. Uh, you know, it's just the impediments that frustrate me. It's, uh, but otherwise, I enjoy my, my job. Uh, but nonetheless, I, there's nothing in this world that I'm, not I'm, that I'm tied to. I'm ready to go. But I don't have any say over that. God will pluck us out of this world when he is ready to pluck us out of this world. But not until his timing is perfect. And so our glorification, our leaving this world is all according to his time. It is all according to his time. He is the sovereign Lord. And so this is why I say justification and glorification, 100% God. But... Our sanctification, well, let me not get ahead of myself. Concerning our justification, the scriptures reveal that God is the one who justifies. And according to Romans 4, 5, he is the one who justifies the ungodly. That's me, that's you, uh, that's all of humanity. And this is a work of God. No works by us are required for the ones who trust in Christ as Savior. No works at all. Remember Romans 4, 4, and 5? Now to the one who works, that is a job, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Now that's true in the human realm, and that's fine as far as that goes. God established work. He even established the six-day work week. Uh, so God, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just we cannot take that model or that way of thinking and apply that to salvation. It doesn't fit. Uh, the equal sign needs to have a slash through it, okay? Because it's not equal to that. 
That's not how we're saved. Salvation is not by works. It is by grace. And we have to orient to that. But notice verse 5. But to the one who does not work. To the one who does not work, but does what? But, but what? But believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. The one who believes his faith is credited as righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, born out of the bounty and goodness of the giver, who offers it to us freely, open-handed, the grace of God, amazing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And notice, that not of yourselves, that not of yourselves. Underscore that, highlight it, little asterisk around it. That, not of yourselves. What? Salvation is the gift of God. If you have to work for it, it's not a gift. But a gift means that it's paid for in full by the giver. And it is received freely by grace. Okay, so it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our justification entirely of the Lord, entirely of the Lord. And concerning our glorification, Jesus Christ is, according to Philippians 3.21, the one who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Who's going to do that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, And we know that when he appears, we will be like him, and in him there is no sin. This means that our future heavenly body will have no sin nature. This also is a work of God alone. However, the second aspect of our salvation, our sanctification, requires positive volition on our part. Do you realize that the New Testament has many verbs that are in the imperative mood? And the form of, the, of the, the imperative mood is the mood of command. And anytime you find a verb in the imperative mood in the Greek New Testament, it assumes three things. It assumes, one, that you have the intellectual capacity to understand the command. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Live at peace with one another. Regard one another as more important than yourself. You see, these are directives by the Lord to us. There are marching orders. They tell us how to think, how to speak, and how to live. And so we find these verbs uh, that are in the imperative mood, and it assumes intellectual capacity that you have the intellect to understand the directive. It also assumes volition that you have the ability to obey the directive. And how do you obey it? You obey it by faith, not feelings. You think loving your enemies is a feeling? It's not. It's not conjuring up a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not. Loving your enemies means that you seek God's best in their life. It means you seek God's best in their life. That's not a feeling, okay? And it means that you are operating in the higher sphere of faith, not feelings, And you apply forgiveness. There are people that I have had to forgive. There are people that hurt me when I was younger and hurt me very badly. And they moved on. I never saw them again. They're probably dead. I don't know. But I had to let go of that. I had to forgive them. Did they earn it or deserve it? No. But neither did I earn or deserve the forgiveness that God gave to me. 
you see? And so I had to extend forgiveness to these people. And as I mentioned last week, unforgiveness is terrible. It's terrible. It's like drinking poison and then hoping the other person dies. It just doesn't work out. It doesn't. But again, the imperative mood assumes intellectual capacity to understand the directive. It assumes volitional capacity that you can obey the directive. Is it hard at times? Yes. But there are times where we have to choose the hard right rather than the easy wrong. Welcome to Christianity. Because living the virtuous life is not going to be easy, but it is the best life that can be lived in this world. It is, without a doubt, the best life that can be lived in this world. And the third thing about the imperative mood is it assumes present and or future opportunity. Because you cannot command a past action. It's gone. It's water under the bridge. And so, but there are these many verbs that are in the imperative mood. And this requires the Christian to obey. You see, your sanctification, your uh, advance to spiritual maturity means you have to have some skin in the game. It means you have to submit yourself to the Lord. Listen, your justification and salvation, that's simple. Your walk with the Lord, your life as a disciple, that's tough. That's tough. That is not going to be easy. And so buckle up. It becomes one of those things where we just have to uh, suit up, salute, and say, yes, sir, and get on with it. And so it requires Christians to obey, to obey the Lord. And as believers, we play a role in our salvation, excuse me, we play a role in our sanctification as we learn and live God's word. And remember, it's always in that order. It's always in that order. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourselves approved unto God as a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, All scripture is God-breathed. Passah, grafe, theopneustas. All scripture, grafe, the written word, is inspired by God. It is literally God-breathed. And it is profitable in four areas of your life. It is profitable for teaching because you have to learn it. The Christian life has to be learned. That's why when people come to my Bible class, they have to think. They have to think because we're studying the word of God. That's what we're studying. And so they have to come in and they have to be teachable. So it is profitable for teaching and for reproof to show us where we're wrong. And we need to be corrected. But it's not just enough to show us where we're wrong, but to correct us in what is right. And notice the last part of verse 16. For training in righteousness. That's righteous living. That's righteous living. For training in righteousness. I want to live a righteous life. I want to walk rightly before my Lord. I want to know his word and I want to abide by it. And that's a journey for me. It's a constant journey. I'm constantly making micro adjustments here and there and refining my thoughts, my words, my actions to align myself with the word of God. And so I'm on this pursuit uh, for a life of righteousness. But that requires training. It requires being in the word, learning the word, and advancing to spiritual maturity. Verse 17, so that, purpose clause, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped 
for every good work. Do you want to do good works for the Lord? You have to be equipped. You have to learn the word because you cannot live what you do not know. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. 2 Peter 3.18, grow, grow, grow. How? In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are to learn the word, and then we are to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We are to surrender ourselves to the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Pleteruste, a present passive imperative in the Greek. Uh, present tense, ongoing action, it's a repeated action. The passive voice means the subject receives the action of the verb. When the Holy Spirit brings scripture to your mind and directs you to a course of action, you need to submit to that. You need to obey the word of God when the Spirit brings it to your remembrance. And the imperative mood is the mood of command. So you are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Furthermore, you are to walk by the Spirit. That is to walk by means of the Spirit. And you are to walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith not sight. Hebrews 10, 38. God says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And I love uh, Romans 10, where it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And of course, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And as we follow these things, as we learn the word, as we yield to the spirit, as we walk in the spirit, as we live by faith, we will obey this directive to press on to maturity. You see, this is part of our Christianity, uh, to press on to maturity. Now, after being justified, that's the moment of faith in Christ, and waiting glorification, that's the future when we leave this world by death or by rapture, in between our trusting Christ as Savior and our leaving this world, uh, that's, that's our time in which we are to pursue a life of sanctification. Now, it is possible at this time for the Christian to go negative to God. That is possible, you see. And I know some believers who uh, say, okay, well, I've trusted in Christ, and, uh, and now I'm going to set the word off to the side, and I'm not going to go to church, and I'm not going to fellowship, and I'm not going to learn the word, and I'm going to go over here and do this thing and that thing. And what they don't realize is they, not only are they saying no to the best life possible in this world, but they are also opening themselves up to divine discipline. You see, and so it is possible for a Christian to remain carnal. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Now, as I mentioned before, such a believer will be subject to divine discipline, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, and even to the point of death if their sinful lifestyle becomes egregious. And not only that, but they will forfeit uh, future rewards. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 uh, talks about our life production, whether that's gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. Notice verse 13, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. That is, when we stand before the Bema seat of Christ. This is, a, this is not to determine our, whether or not we get into heaven, because we'll already be in heaven when this is going on. This is to determine our rewards in heaven, because once we get into the eternal state, God is going to reward believers who were faithful in time. And there are future rewards that we can look forward to as believers who are obedient during our time in this world. 
And he says, because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, if any man's work, which he has built on it remains, that's the believer who lives uh, daily, learning the word, living the word, walking by faith, advancing to spiritual maturity. That's the believer who will produce gold and silver and precious stones. That believer will receive a reward. And I gave a whole hour lesson one time here about two years ago on the doctrine of rewards. And it's through and through the Bible. But, 15, if any man's work, this is the believer, if any man's work is burned up, this is the Christian who lives uh, according to Satan's world system, status quo carnality, who never advances to spiritual maturity, and is really like some of the Corinthian believers who were fighting with each other, arguing with each other, having uh, uh, incestuous relationships with each other, read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, who were getting drunk, who were uh, being very selfish, who were taking each other to court. These are the carnal Christians. And they do exist. Just read the letter to Corinthians. You'll see. But he says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Loss of what? Loss of reward. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, he's going he's gonna to get through uh, the Bema seat uh, evaluation, but he's going to go into heaven, and he's just going to have his birthday suit on, and there's going to be his hair is going to be all singed. He's going to be having a smoke wisping off his hair and his head, and it'll take him a while to recover. Now, he'll be in heaven. He'll be saved, yet so as through fire. You see? And so this is what happens to the carnal Christian. And they do exist, by the way. Second John 1.8 says, uh, watch yourselves. See, this is a warning. I'm going a few minutes over, but bear with me. We'll be done in just a second. He says, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished. Well, okay. Uh, is it possible to forfeit rewards for eternity? Yes. Otherwise, this whole warning would be superfluous. It would be absolutely meaningless. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive what? A full reward. I want that full reward. I do. I want that. And I know that that is going to glorify God in eternity. Do you know that, that there's, there's a, a, in, in Revelation, there's an image of believers in heaven casting their crowns before the Lord? Do you know that not everybody gets a crown? Do you know that crowns, are a reward for uh, believers who are faithful in this life. And do you know how you live now? Follow me on this. How you live right now will determine your ability to worship the Lord in heaven. Because you cannot cast at his feet what you do not have. And if you want that full expression of worship to cast that crown before his feet, you've got to live the life now. Because what you do in time determines your life in eternity. And those believers who worship the who serve the Lord now will have greater capacity for worship in the heavenly and eternal state. And a lot of times people don't think about these things. They just don't think about it, but that's why we come to Bible class. Okay, so we only got through the first two points, but that's all right. We chased a lot of scripture, and I talk fast, so you have to think fast. And if you didn't get it all, well, you can go back and listen to it and maybe catch something uh, that you may have missed uh, through there. So anyway, so next week we will pick up and we will talk about, well, not next week. Next week's Christmas. 
so we're all going to take a break for Christmas. We're going to be with family. So next week, no Bible study. Um, uh, but we'll meet uh, uh, the, for the first of the year. How's that? Uh, so we'll pick up on eternal life. And of course, you've got the notes, so you can read ahead if you want and chase down all the scripture references if you want. All right, so that'll close out uh, tonight's lesson on these two particular um, uh, theological words or categories. Do we have any questions? Frank. Yes, Frank. Let me close this out real quick. Stop sharing. Okay, Frank, what's up, buddy? No questions? Okay. Anybody else have any questions? I do. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Josie. Fire away. Okay, I'm driving, but I listen the whole time. Awesome. Uh, Thank you so much. It was such a great teaching, and I always enjoy reading uh, the email notes before it starts. Oh, good. Um, So uh, when you were talking about... um, how we will be rewarded on our faithfulness. I'm trying to understand the faithfulness without, like, because I've been kind of studying how Cain and Abel, like, God uh, respected Abel's sacrifice and the fat as opposed to Cain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Cain worked. And so I'm trying to, like, figure out the significance of the fat and how how we are to remain faithful. <laughs> I'm trying to understand that without, like, being legalistic and, like, hyper self-conscious of, it, of everything I'm doing. No, I appreciate that. To, it, yeah. And, and, and I kind of go back and forth with that, too, because we are called to a life of righteousness. Clearly, the Lord wants us to walk in the truth and to live by faith. Clearly, that is what the Lord directs us to do. Uh, not that we are trying to earn our salvation. We already have that. That's by grace. Um, and yet, in phase two of the Christian life, that's our sanctification. That's our walk with the Lord. So that's our advance to spiritual maturity. But that requires learning and living the word. And righteousness is always according to a standard, because if we talk about something being righteous, we talk about it being right, but right is always measured by a standard. And so the standard is the word of God with regard to our conduct, how we conduct ourselves as believers who will walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So our walk of obedience is not that we're trying to earn our salvation. We have that. That's, that's secure. That's done. That's Christ and Christ alone. Uh, But what we are doing is we are trying to advance to maturity that we might live the best life that we can live now, which glorifies the Lord. It actually glorifies him. It honors the Lord that we live this life and it edifies others because when we are faithful to the Lord, others benefit. Our spouse benefits, parents, children, friends, co-workers, everybody around us benefits when we are walking uh, in the spirit, when we are walking in obedience to the Lord. So... But what's nice about it is that the Lord tells us that he will reward us uh, in eternity. And that's what John's uh, argument is. He says, look, I don't want you to lose your reward. I want you to have a full reward. And so that is kind of a, that, that can be a motivator for believers, especially if we want to cast our crowns at the feet of the king. Uh, because again, how we live in time determines our capacity for worship in the eternal state. Um, so it doesn't become legalistic. Legalism is when we, by our efforts, are trying to win the approval of God with regard to salvation. 
Uh, and of course, that's entirely wrong. But, uh, you know, when you think of Hebrews eleven six, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. And I want to please the Lord. I want the Lord to be pleased with me. Well, how do I do that? I do that by learning his word and living his word by walking by faith. That's what pleases him. And so when you get back to the Cain and Abel thing, and that's kind of a difficult uh, uh, situation uh, back there with Cain and Abel because we don't really have a lot that's going on there as far as like why one was accepted and the other was rejected. Uh, we know that the one who brought the, the animal sacrifice was the one that was accepted. And this, I think, goes back to Genesis 3 when God killed an animal and took the skins of the animal and used it to clothe Adam and Eve. I think in that act, I think there was the communication of a life that uh, was taken and blood that was shed. And I think that's why when, uh, um, when Cain offered the fruit of the ground rather than uh, an animal that had offered its life, I think he was trying to offer something that didn't fit in, align, in alignment with God's expectation for worship. Um, and, you know, part of that is an argument from silence because the text just doesn't tell us. So we're left to try to, you know, think it through. And, and I don't know if that answered your question or not. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's a, I mean, it's a, it's a deep thing to study, but I appreciate your teaching. Thank you so much. Oh, you bet. Thank you for your question. I love that. And if I think of a better answer, I'll include it in the email. How's that? <laughs> um, anybody else have any other questions or comments? Are we good? All right. Well, let's. Let's wrap it up with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together this evening. Uh, we thank you for this time of fellowship, for the freedoms that we enjoy, for the many blessings that you bestow upon us. We thank you for your word, which gives us insights into realities that we could never know except that you have spoken and you have revealed these things to us. And Father, we are so thankful for the salvation that you have provided for us, and it is so great a salvation. And we are just so thankful uh, for all that has been provided for us. And Father, we just pray in the days and weeks and months ahead as we continue to study this subject that this will be a time of fruitful understanding uh, that we might just grow closer to you, Father. We thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.